0: best laid plans of mice and men often go awry. Have you ever had one of those days where despite being proactive, despite all your effort, nothing turns out like you planned? One of those days. How about one of those years? I mean, much of 2020 has been a prolonged experience of our best laid plans going awry. How many calendar events over these last six months did we have scheduled that ended up being canceled or postponed? How many holidays, birthdays, or other significant life events during this last year have we had to completely adjust and revise our expectations for? Speaking just for myself, my family, we had a college graduation that was canceled, a wedding ceremony that's been postponed, several milestone birthdays that we planned on celebrating much differently. And if I expand this list to include my broader family of grace, you, what's taken place in just the six, six months that's changed, the list gets even longer. What does your list look like? What plans for your life got canceled, postponed, or revised for this year? Because it's into this situation, the overwhelming reality that has come to define 2020, that the next passage from the letter of James to the church speaks. To all of us who assumed our lives and schedules would be what we planned, that everything we mapped out would come to pass to an entire planet of people that presumed life tomorrow would continue as we knew it yesterday until a virus became a global pandemic and changed everything. To those who still out of tiredness, frustration, or just plain denial of our circumstances refuse to accept the way things are and persist in trying to regain control of their calendars, their careers, and their comforts. James has a word for us today. A word for today, a word about tomorrow, a word about living for the present and planning for the future, a word that maybe for the first time ever, we might actually be in the right place to hear. So here it is from James 4, verses 13 through 17. Today's scripture reading comes to us from James 4, verses 13 through 17. Read with me. Now listen, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go to this or that city, spend a year there, carry on business and make money. Why, you do not even know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if it is the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogant schemes. All such boasting is evil. If anyone then knows the good they ought to do and doesn't do it, it is a sin for them. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. The way this passage starts might tempt us to believe James is not talking to us. I mean, after all, he addresses his comments to those who travel, who go into this or that city and then spend a year there carrying on business and making money. In other words, James appears to be talking strictly to merchants, to vendors, to tradespeople. But James is offering a situation from the world of business that's intended to serve as an example for all people. The key here is not what these people do, it's about how they go about doing it, specifically how they make their plans. James is capturing an attitude, an ethos, an approach to life where we presume that all of our plans are going to come about simply because we made those plans. And to be clear, before we go any further, James isn't saying making or having a plan is wrong, a bad thing. I mean, repeatedly throughout God's word, especially in the book of Proverbs, the wisdom of anticipating and preparing for tomorrow is commended to us. Within the narratives of the Bible, we witness several varied examples of godly people making plans, from Joseph to King David, from Paul, Peter, even Jesus himself. As good stewards of all that God has given us, we are encouraged to cultivate the habit of planning, to be mindful that we reap what we sow in terms of our time, talent, and other resources. Making plans is not the issue. The problem is making plans with the assumption that we have control over our plans. The problem is believing we have a unilateral ability or power to determine when, where, what, and how long we will accomplish something. Why is this a problem? James reveals the foolishness of such a mindset as he declares, why you don't even know what will happen tomorrow. And he's right, isn't he? We don't know the future. We can speculate. We can anticipate, we can make an informed guess and plan for tomorrow, but ultimately we don't know what tomorrow will bring. The most tragic events in our lives are often the most unexpected, the things we never see coming, the stuff we might have granted as existing within the realm of possibility, but we never could have imagined as actually happening to us. James tells us we should never presume that tomorrow will be like today because our resources and our ability to control outcomes Are much more limited than we realize or admit to ourselves. We don't even know all there is to know about the past or the present, so how can we on our own possibly know or guarantee the future? We cannot assume that any of our plans will turn out the way we want, James goes on, not only because our knowledge is finite, but because we ourselves are finite creatures. James's first point is you and I do not have the power and the control we convince ourselves we have. His second point is even more humbling as James asks, what is your life? What is your life? There are many answers that have been given to this question, but James, as always, keeps it real and tells it straight. What is your life? James says you are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Have you ever been camping and watched the smoke from the fire curl up and dissolve into the night sky? Have you ever, on a really hot day, sprayed yourself with a water bottle and witnessed the water droplets quickly turn to vapor in the wind? Have you ever caught a morning sunrise come up over a river and melt away the bank of fog along the surface of the water? These are the images that James is invoking to describe what our lives are. Whether we fancy ourselves to be a prominent business person, an award-winning athlete, a noted scholar, a decorated war hero, a rising artist, a skilled musician, the President of the United States, or the world's greatest mom. We are all but a wisp, a vapor. We are but a mist because we are all mortal. Every human life by itself has a beginning and an end. In the span of eternity, each of us on our own exists for a brief moment only to be gone in the next. None of us wants to admit this, but that doesn't make it any less true. Ours is a world that lives in denial of our mortality. All of our modern comforts and conveniences, including our healthcare system, are designed to enable us to keep the end of the road out of sight and therefore out of mind. But James refuses to write us another prescription to make us feel comfortably numb as we punt our perishability downfield. James doesn't tell us here to be strong. James doesn't tell us not to let our mortality dominate our lives. James challenges us to recognize our frailty, and to accept our vulnerability. James encourages us to remember and not to forget or ignore that we do not have the power to control how long we have to live, and therefore we cannot assume that we have tomorrow, or next week, or next month, or next year. For James, the reality of our mortality, that life is short, exposes the folly of our presumption that we cannot plan for the future as if we alone control our destiny. For all you and I know, Today could be the last day of our life. And before this all sounds too dark and depressing, James isn't trying to convince us to resign ourselves to some fatalistic worldview. James isn't suggesting that our lives are meaningless and without purpose. I mean, Christianity isn't alone in telling the truth about the transience of our humanity. Other faiths and secular philosophies also attest that our lives are but a flash in the pan, a blip on the radar, a flower that blooms and fades. But Christianity doesn't stop here, confronting the inevitability of our death. This, in fact, is where our faith begins. Christianity faces the truth of our mortality in order to reveal the possibility and the promise of our resurrection, of a life that does not ultimately end, but that is radically extended and transformed eternally. So James isn't declaring, eat, drink, be merry, because tomorrow we die. No, for James, admitting that our lives on their own are transitory and uncertain is the starting point for first recognizing and then living as though our lives are in God's hands. In verse 15, James redirects our mindset away from the folly of our presumption to the confidence born of our faith. He writes, instead, you ought to say, if it is the Lord's will, we will live or do this and that. Again, James isn't saying there's anything wrong with planning or living for the future. The problem James is addressing is when God has no place in our plans. James is seeking to correct this kind of thinking by getting us back to square one. Before we even begin to make any plans, we need to acknowledge that it's only by the Lord's will that you and I are living today. We didn't bring ourselves into this world. And every breath we take, every beat of our heart, every movement of our body, every engagement of our mind, every inspiration of our spirit is only by the grace of God. However, saying if the Lord wills does not mean we can do what we want as long as God keeps us alive. That's not the point. The point is life itself is contingent upon the will of God, then therefore so must our plans. That's why James goes on to add, we ought to say if it is the Lord's will whenever we propose to do this or that. You know, back in the day, this kind of understanding was once built into the Christian mindset, as earlier generations of believers used to say, the Lord willing, or conclude their letters writing something of their plans with the addition of the Latin phrase, Deo Volente, or God permitting. If you survey the various letters recorded in the New Testament, you'll discover the Apostle Paul regularly affirms if it is God's will as he writes of his hopes and plans. Jesus taught us to pray this way, thy will be done. Jesus himself prayed these very words in the Garden of Gethsemane before his journey to the cross. Father, yet not as I will, but as you will. The inclusion of this little phrase was an acknowledgement that any proposal for the future must not overlook that our plans are always subject to the Lord's plans for us and for this world. But let's be clear, the Lord willing is not intended to be a slogan, something we just tack on to anything we say or write in terms of our plans. That's not the point James is making at all if it is the Lord's will, is not just supposed to be something we say, it's to become our adopted mindset in approaching everything we do, every breath we take each day and every moment as a gift from God. And in acknowledgement of that gift, rather than taking such grace for granted, we are to make all our plans in light of this fixed perspective of living in complete dependence upon the Lord. As human beings, we have been created not just to believe in God, but to live our lives for God. God didn't come down to us in the person of Jesus Christ so that we would finally believe in him. God came to us in Christ, clearing away all the obstacles before us in our relationship with him through the cross, the resurrection and Pentecost, so that we would follow him as the way, the truth and the life. And the fact of the matter is how we face each day as well as how we anticipate and work in terms of the future is a clear indicator of whether or not we are living for God of whether or not we are following Jesus. When we fall into the habit of living our daily lives and planning our future without considering and relying upon the Lord, we are guilty of operating out of a form of practical atheism. Atheism, why? Because we are engaging our lives as if God isn't there. When we confess with our mouths on Sunday that Jesus is Lord and savior of our lives, but then conduct ourselves Monday through Saturday as if we are the Lords and masters of our destiny, we are functionally denying Christ. So take a moment and reflect on your life right now. Consider the decisions you've made in the past that you're making now. Consider all the plans you've made you're making for your future. Decisions and plans related to your career path and goals. Decisions and plans related to where you're living. If you're married or hope to be married someday, decisions and plans related to your marriage partner. If you have kids or desire to have children, decisions and plans related to your children, decisions and plans related to how you budget and spend your resources, your time, your finances, decisions and plans related to your retirement, to how long you will live. How much has the Lord been involved in those past decisions and in those future plans? Did we pray over any of these decisions and plans? Did we listen through God's Word and by the Holy Spirit to hear and to consider what the Lord's plans for us might be? Did we even ask if our plans and goals are what God's goals and plans are, not just for us, but for all his people, for his creation? Do we wait upon the Lord before we make our choices and act? Or do we execute our decisions and our plans and then come to the Lord asking God to bless what we've already decided to do? My friends, it doesn't take much to start leaving God out of our decisions and our plans. Part of our confession as Christians is that we are a broken people, Forgiven, yes, but still being reformed of our tendency to live for ourselves, to function as if the world centers and revolves around us. And in the midst of our spiritual recovery by the grace of God from our addiction to self, we are bombarded constantly by self-help strategies, advertisers, even leadership examples that urge us, sometimes even shaming us if we don't claim and assert our self-determination, our self-sufficiency, our autonomy and independence. And the more we scratch that itch, the more we convince ourselves we have the power to carry out our plans, the less we will abide in the power of the Spirit, the less we will yield to the Lord's plans for our lives and this world. The more we think, speak, and act under the assumption that we're in control, that we have the right to impose our will and desires for the present and the future with impunity, the less credit and recognition, glory, honor, and praise we will rightly give to the Lord. We will instead presumptuously take all the credit for ourselves. This is what James is talking about when he says in verse 16, as it is, you boast in your arrogant schemes. All such boasting is evil. But why? Why is it evil to take pride in our decisions and our plans? Because it is precisely at the point where our decisions and our plans are our source of strength, our comfort, our hope for tomorrow, that all those decisions and all those plans become our functional God. We're looking to them, trusting and relying on our decisions and our plans to give us joy, to give us peace, to make everything wrong, right. Beloved, the more we believe in ourselves, the less we believe in and rely on Christ. The more we live for ourselves, the less we live for Christ, and therefore the less we live to support and care for each other. And this, above all, is God's ultimate plan for our life together, right? that we glorify him by expressing his love through the good we do for our neighbor, acting justly, practicing mercy, sharing from what we have been given for the betterment of all persons. James underscores this with the last verse of this passage, of this chapter, when he writes, If anyone then knows the good they ought to do and doesn't do it, it is sin for them. Now, we tend to look at sin as wronging God and doing what we shouldn't do, but James is clarifying that we sin not only when we say and do things that are wrong, But we sin when we also refuse to do what is right, what God requires of us. To accept God's reign over all creation, to to declare ourselves citizens of his kingdom is to embrace God's law of love and to commit to live by it. And James, having just finished telling us to keep the Lord involved in all our planning, to live as we have been called in following Jesus, now makes it clear we have no excuse if we fail to do so because having just taught us this principle, we know better. We're living through a season right now that has forcibly opened our eyes to the truth of what James is telling us. All our lives have been reset by something invisible called COVID-19. Our best laid plans at work, for our homes, in terms of our wealth and our resources, within our families and friendships have been completely wiped out or forced to radically change. And as we try to make decisions for the future, we honestly don't know what tomorrow will bring. Can I confess to you for a moment how hard it has been to be your pastor over these last six months. In the midst of all that has changed within my life and within the Ministry of Grace, all that, what's been harder for me, has been trying to make decisions over these past six months and to plan for our future together with the staff and leadership of this community. Because there's so many unknowns before us. And and at the same time, there are countless opinions about what's real, what's true, and what's necessary in the midst of all of this. Some of you haven't been bashful about sharing them. At the same time, there are segments of our community who aren't communicating with us, who aren't showing up either in person or online, despite our best efforts to keep in touch with them. And in the midst of all this, as I found myself consumed in the effort to make the right decisions, the best plans for our future, frankly, it's been an exhausting and continually frustrating experience. And to tell the truth, until we came to this part of James's letter, I didn't understand why this was the case. But now I get it. Six months in and what the coronavirus has exposed is the degree to which I have become accustomed to finding my confidence, my peace and security in my perceived power and control to make plans for my life and for this ministry. Don't misunderstand me. I've been praying and seeking God's will. I have. I've been mindful of the Lord's plans. It's just I've realized how much I've taken God's presence, his blessings and his grace for granted as a given rather than the place The relationship from which I start. And you know what really brought this home for me? When I realized I just kept wanting things to go back to normal. Have you said that? I want this to go back to normal. And by normal, I mean back to my perceived ability to control things, back to my presumptions of having power to determine what comes next for me, and frankly, for grace. But what if Jesus doesn't want my life to go back to normal? What if Jesus isn't leading me back to the place I once was, where I was following my lead more than I was following his? What if Jesus is working through all of this by his spirit to lead me to depend more on him and less on myself? What if Jesus is redirecting me from having all my decisions and plans blessed by him and instead having all the choices I make and the plans I commit to first be shaped by him? Bob Goff, a former lawyer and now renowned Christian author and speaker, crystallized what the Holy Spirit was putting on my heart and mind when he wrote this. The way we deal with uncertainty says a lot about whether Jesus is ahead of us leading or just behind us carrying our stuff. What say we, Church? In the throes of the instability of these last six months, and as the uncertainty of unexpected events continue to unfold in our world today, are we following Jesus' lead Or are we presuming Jesus is supposed to be following our lead, and so he's behind us carrying our stuff? Following Jesus involves an important balance between doing nothing and trying to control everything. On the one hand, James is stressing our existence and all of our activity, attempting to map out every square inch of our lives, is subject to the sovereign will of the Lord. God is God, and we are not. All of our plans, our goals, and our dreams for the future, at home, at work, in the public square, or in the church, must be framed, must be grounded, must be tempered by the humble recognition of the fact that the Lord reigns, that only what our almighty creator ordains and allows will come to pass. And that sort of humility doesn't diminish our hopes and plans for the future. It sanctifies them. It keeps our plans in the realms of reality as a holy means of serving God instead of a sinful attempt to replace Him. It yields our plans to the shaping and transformation by the Holy Spirit so that our lives become sacred conduits of the blessings of the fruit of the kingdom of God. Because on the other hand, while James declares with the rest of scripture that the Lord reigns, James isn't nullifying our agency or responsibility as human beings, telling us to throw all planning to the wind. God created us with a free will in the sense that we have the ability to make real choices that have a genuine consequential effect on our lives, on this world and the immediate future. And that means we must remain both conscious and attentive in the choices we make and the plans we undertake to do what is right in the eyes of God today, because we can't take for granted that we'll have the opportunity to do so tomorrow. We should not wait to honor our parents. We should not wait to invest in our marriage. We cannot wait to spend time with our children or engage and develop our friendships later because we don't know what tomorrow will bring. We cannot choose to wait to address the realities of social, racial, gender, economic, and environmental injustice and concerns later because God has called us to live rightly today. Not when it's convenient, not when it's comfortable, not when it makes sense to us, but now, because today is what we have been given. Tomorrow belongs to the Lord, not to us. Whatever we plan for tomorrow is in the Lord's hands and not ours. Beloved, the fact that we're not in control doesn't mean the world in which we live is out of control. The invitation and challenge before us is to be a people who move forward with the quiet confidence that our entire lives, from start to finish, along with every aspect of the world around us, past, present and future, is firmly under the sovereign care and dominion of the Creator of all things. And it's with this certainty and security that we have both the freedom and responsibility to make decisions and to orchestrate plans. But the good news is that we don't have to either come up with those plans or to execute them on our own. All we have to do is make the most of the time we have been given by following Jesus's lead. And that means living fully into each moment, loving and serving each other more and worrying and struggling by ourselves to control things less. The answers we're searching for and the hope we seek are not to be found through our best laid plans of trying to get everything back to normal, no. The reconciliation and redemption for which we all long will only be realized as we follow the God who is not just up in heaven, aloof and detached, letting us do whatever we want to do, but rather who in Christ and through the Holy Spirit remains in the midst of our very real choices, actively, wisely, working all things together according to the perfection of his will, of his plans for us, which is for our individual and collective good forever and ever. Amen.